Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, road manager and music aficionado, Marty Kramer. We'll be talking about his life working with some of the biggest acts in the history of music, like Burton Cummings, Randy Bachman, Ringo Starr, Led Zeppelin, many more. Uh, Marty's been in the music business for well over 50 years, and he is in that time has basically done everything. He's been everywhere, so he has a lifetime of experiences to share, and someone that I know reasonably well. You came out of Winnipeg, and you were you were friends with Burton. I guess you decided right. to. Get I came him. out of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and when I was like fourteen years of age, for the sake of discussion, I met Burton. Uh, he was in a band called the Devrons. I ended up uh, meeting him of all places in a pool hall, and uh, we were waiting around uh, to get a table. And he was standing there, and I was standing there, and I guess he might have been waiting for somebody. I might have been waiting for somebody, and I said, "Hey." Uh, who are you next or am I next kind of thing? And he says, whatever. He says, do you want to shoot a game together? That way we got the table. So that was the first actual meeting of Burton Cummings, not knowing who he was or what he was. I, I lived in West Codona and he lived in the North End. So the bottom line, I said, what do you do? He says, oh, I work in the music business. And what do you do? Well, you know, I'm still going to school and weekend jobs and whatever odd jobs. So he says, oh, we've got a band. I said, oh, really? I said, uh, what's it called? He said, the Devruns. I says, never heard of them, which is true. I never did hear them. <laughs> he says, uh, do you want to um, come down and hear us? We rehearse once a week. So in those days, you didn't have text and you didn't have uh, iPhones and uh, faxes and so on and so forth. So he says, here, write my number down. He used to write people's numbers down on pieces of paper. Inadvertently, you'd lose them. But yeah. in this case, I wrote it down on the famous cigarette package. You used to write everything down. You used to tear either the top of the cigarette package or inside. Uh, I would take the foil out and write on the paper yeah. behind it on the cardboard. So I wrote his number down. And uh, I said, sure, I'd love to come. So the first time I came, he introduced me as a friend from the pool hall. I listened to the guys. They were doing cover stuff, the, the usual uh, mid-60s cover. Uh, one thing led to the other, and he says, oh, you know, uh, we want to showcase and we want to uh, play somewhere. Well, you, in those days, you had your community clubs, you had your school dances, you had functions. It was like totally unheard of. To, to be able uh, to open for anybody, you know, it, it was unheard of. Mm -hmm. You were always somebody that just came there and you usually got pop and potato chips and you, you got a little bit of food and uh, very little money, if any. And that was it. So you did it for the fun of it, for the fun of the music and that. So one thing led to the other. And um, I sat in on maybe two, three rehearsals. And after that, I said, you guys sound pretty good. And he said, yeah, I wish we could do something beyond just rehearsing in everybody's basement. So I just said, leave it with me. Well, I knew nothing about nothing. Mm -hmm. And I guess that was my shoe in to, how should we say, booking a band the first time I ever did anything of that consequence. So phone book, you yeah. look up all these community centers. One of the very... Um, 
first ones, believe it or not, was a church dance. They had a church hall uh, adjacent to the chapel and everything. So I phoned up, uh, talked to the social committee and said, listen, are you people going to have any dances or what? Well, we've never really done it. So I said, look, I'd like to come in there and see what we can do. Well, to me, it was just a form of getting the exposure for the band, Dan, and getting in, them into a bigger environment out of a basement. Yeah. So I put them in there, and it was a good success. I think uh, we got five bucks, and everybody got a dollar, which was fine, and I got 10%. Then I just started to phone the community clubs, and it grew, and it yeah. got bigger and bigger until finally we were a name to be reckoned with in Winnipeg. I noticed that in your introduction, you said Marty Kramer, road manager, but I used to have it as Marty Kramer, tour slash road manager. Because yeah. when I did the tours, I was the tour manager. When we did the road uh, things around town and that local, it wasn't a tour. It was just weekend venues and that. Yeah. I was the road manager and also personal manager. So I, I wore quite a few hats yeah. over the years. And it's a tough business and you've survived in it, which is, which is kind of a testament to your fortitude as well. And uh, I understand you avoided the rock and roll lifestyle too, right? You didn't get caught up. Yeah, in the- I, I felt that if, if I took part in what they're doing, somebody had to be sane at the end of the day. Yeah. And if, if it wasn't me, uh, what kind of, uh, uh, outlook would you have? What kind of future would you have in this business? Because, uh, you know, the artists, the band members, they get caught up in stuff. They've got enough on their plate, let alone get caught up in the aftermath, after a show, after, uh, after parties, staying up all night, uh, unable to sing, unable to appear in public. I was one that advocated zero tolerance before zero tolerance was even introduced. I just said, look, guys, what you do, you do. I don't want to see it on the stage. I don't want to see it backstage. That's why I was a stickler for nobody, Dan, on stage except the artist, the monitor guy, the stage manager, any type of a technician that needed to be there. When those performances went on, the only person that stayed in that wing was me. You're the go-to guy. You're the guy that people have to rely on, right? So if you say, "Well, we got to fix something here," let's get Marty. He's gonna, you know, <laughs> we gotta get, we gotta get it done. Whether it's sixty minutes, seventy-five minutes, an extension of time, a shortage of time, a delay, and I always prided myself then in starting the show on time. If you booked me and you said, "Marty, you're on from eight till nine. That didn't mean I went on at 8.15, yeah. Dan. It didn't mean I went on at 7.45. And it didn't mean I stayed on till 8.15. You told me 8 till 9, guess what? That's where I am. I'm on. Just going back to Burton now, you went. You were with him for 27 years, right? Like you guys. On the road, 27 years, inseparable. Everywhere he went, I went. It was like we were joined at the shoulder. Uh, and it was like we were Siamese twins. Tell me some of your favorite Burton stories that, uh, over the years. We were up in Nowheresville. There's a bunch of cows. And he says to me, let's do a video of me singing to the cows. <laughs> okay, fine. So I'm in the Jeep. He gets out of the Jeep. He was driving. I was sitting in the driver's seat. 
I turn the camera on. He walks over to the cows. Well, the cows are about <laughs> 10 feet away. Well, when they see people, they don't know whether you're coming to feed them or what. They're fairly domesticated. Yeah. So they start coming towards them. Now, we had a cassette player. So when he got the cows got close enough, he motioned to me to press the cassette player, and he would do a lip sync to the song. So he starts singing to the cows. The cows look at him. I look at the cows and do a close-up with him in the forefront and them in the background. They turn around then. They walk away. <laughs> then they get about four feet away. One of them proceeds to plop the biggest droppings I've ever seen in my life. And another one takes a whiz, like flooded the hole behind the fence. And it was running out onto the driveway where we were. And he's yelling, we got to get out of here quick and jump back in. And that was like a cut. Today, I'm very happy to have as my guests, Martha Johnson and Mark Gain of the popular Canadian group, Martha and the Muffins. Martha and Mark uh, had great commercial success with their 1980s hit Echo Beach, but have done much more in subsequent years. So thanks for joining me today, Martha and Mark. How are you? Good, Dan. Glad to be here. We're fine. Thank you. Well, good. Well, thanks for coming on and uh, sharing some of your insights about uh, your journey through the music business. I guess you were originally from Toronto and you're still in Toronto. You were college musicians that kind of got together. Is that the story? Yeah. we we uh, Mark was at Ontario College of Art and... Uh, I, I had finished uh, university and I, I had gone to York University and um, in Toronto. And uh, yeah. we had a common friend who put the band together and asked each of us separately to if we wanted to join a band, form a band, and we did. So that, I, I'm always curious about that too. Did you have a plan or did you just kind of fall together and do a few gigs and say, let's see what happens? Yeah, it was really, you know, it was quite in context of the spirit of the times because, uh, I, you know, being at art college uh, back in the mid-70s, early 80s, uh, it was all sort of punk, post-punk, new wave. Uh, people were forming bands weekly and bands were falling apart weekly and re yes. reforming. And so there, there was no real plan. I think uh, both Martha and I, just thought it would be a really fun thing to do. And there was no idea that it could possibly ever develop into, a, you know, a means of making a living. And I think we both thought that, you know, we would do this for a year or maybe slightly longer or shorter and then get on with our lives. And, uh, you know, through a whole bunch of um, lucky breaks, uh, that wasn't to be. And then, so the name Martha and the Muffins, I've, I've, I've heard that story a few times. You said there was nothing really special behind that. It was just kind of a name that sort of stuck just as a handle. Well, we our first show ever was at the Ontario College of Art in October on, on Halloween of 1977. And that previous summer when we were rehearsing and getting songs together, we were arguing over what name the band should be and everybody would bring in names and nobody liked each other's name. And this gig came up and it came down to, you've got to put a name on the poster and somebody um, who ended up being in the diodes, uh, another Toronto band, uh, but briefly was playing with us, suggested the muffins as sort of a temporary, a, a temporary yeah, definitely a temporary thing, sort of an anti-punk pro-feminist kind of thing. And then someone else yeah. said, uh, put Martha. Martha in front of it. 
And we went, well, okay, we'll just do that for this gig. And then we'll think of something cool like Voice of the Beehive or something. Um, And it never happened. So the name stuck. You know, we don't, I mean, I particularly probably don't like it, but I'm used to it now. After 40 years, you have to be. So you were called Eminem at times too. Was that, was there confusion over that? Definitely. Um, that was one of the worst PR things we ever did. And I, <laughs> I, and it's all my fault. Martha, you know, had nothing to do with it other than me telling her I was sick of being called a muffin. Yeah. And uh, so what happened is after on our fourth album, Dance Park, we put M plus M slash Martha and the Muffins or the other way around. And then for the next two albums, it was just M plus M. And it was like that you, I don't know, this is a long, long time ago, but there was some point where Coca-Cola came out with classic Coke and they introduced something else with another name and it was a total bomb, right? Mm, okay. And on a much, much... Cherry. Yeah, yeah. Like cherry Coke? Cherry Coke or, or whatever. And, you know, on a much smaller scale, ours was a bomb too because when we had this dance hit called Black Stations, White Stations in 1984, it was M plus M only. And very few people made the connection with, oh, those are the same people and essentially, you know, well, the same songwriters, the same main people in the band that did Echo Beach. And there was a disconnect there. For years after that, um, when we ran into like fans, we'd say, what do you like better, M plus M or Martha Muffins? They always said Martha and Muffins. So we, we we went back. So you were classified as a new wave band, which I think was fair. I mean, the Knack and there were some other bands that came out around that time. Uh, the labels obviously like to categorize the band. And so were you comfortable with that label? Was that what you were? Um, I, You know, initially anyway, but, you know, in the ensuing, I, I don't know, it's at eight or nine albums we put out now. We have jumped genres uh, yeah. all over the place and like a lot i would say the majority of our stuff wouldn't be called new wave at all it'd probably be called you know art punk, uh, art wave or art pop art pop or you know you could put any one of those handles on it alternative but, yeah probably alternative is the biggest uh canopy under which we work but yeah. certainly the first two albums probably would could be categorized as new wave anyway well, it's, it, I mean, the thing is artists typically, in my experience, don't like to be labeled that way. That's more of a marketing thing, right? You're more eclectic. You say, you know, we write songs that we like, we have different flavors, we use different instruments, we'll do whatever. Yeah, and that's one of the sort of uncomfortable tension points between music and business, you know? Like yeah. artists just want to be artists. And then, as you say, you know, there's always like, we've got a you know, what category, what format or, you know, in, in radio, what are you going to go into? And of course, when we started, we had no knowledge of this at all. So I suppose in some respects, we were pretty naive about that. So Echo Beach came out in 1980, correct? Yeah. Yep. And that was your, and that was your big hit. And so there's been, I looked on YouTube, there's over 1.5 million views on that. So, but are you classified as a one hit wonder band? I mean, would that be fair? Um, well, it's not fair, but it's, Typical of people that don't live in Canada, I suppose, generally speaking, like we get that in England, but in fact, it's a geographical prejudice. You know, people are more centered around their own territories or their own country. But, you know, so to be accurate, Echo Beach was our biggest hit, but Black Stations, White Stations was a big hit in the States, you know, in the The dance, dance, uh, Dance on the dance charts. And we only got beat out by Prince. He, we put When Doves yeah. Cry. 
went to number one. Yeah, we couldn't we get number to number two. <laughs> yeah. But in Canada, we've had several, you know, radio hits. And I think we always find it, you know, kind of amusing slash irritating because the idea of measuring your music by charts just, yeah. we never got used to that. And, you know, yeah, we, we were kind of, we've been doing, you know, various forms of pop music over the years, but a lot of it ventures into way more noisy stuff. And this whole, I mean, there's people out there that seem to spend their lives telling you, you know, what your song charted at and what territory. And, you know, to be honest, we probably couldn't care less about that other than the fact that it reaches a lot of people. And there are the people that only know Echo Beach. And then there's the people that know everything from every album. And everything in between. And everything in between. But a lot of people don't realize we're the same band who did a song like women around the world at work or, or cooling yeah. medium. And they, they know these other songs, but you know, they don't know the name of the band. You did a 30th anniversary version of echo beach, just as an aside. And it was a slower, like a slower version. Cool. It's different, but it's super cool. It's like a loungy kind of almost jazzy. Yeah. It's a very different approach to the song, but I think looking back uh, 30 years, it, you have to have a different slant on on the song. I mean, the punky version, the original version, you know, it's quite, quite quick and the pace is quite um, fast. And yeah. we just found uh, this pro- the the uh, slow one and the uh, the 30th anniversary version of Echo Beach. It had a lot more um, nostalgia to it. Yeah, and looking back and, and reflecting. The first single that Virgin Dindisk put out in the UK was Insect Love. And they did it on purpose because they knew Echo Beach would probably, they were hoping it would do really well, but they didn't want to blow it with the first. They wanted to introduce us to they, the audience. Okay. Yeah, they yeah. wanted. And so what happened was they, you know, they put out Insect Love and all these curious but condescending comments came out of the the british press like oh who's this band from the colonies moth and muffins and what's <laughs> this it's called insect love you know and so yeah. it got noticed in in all the day in the weekly music mags and it just set it up for for echo beach it which, was thinking enough that okay. people paid attention attention yeah. Okay. That that's good. That was that was what I was driving at. Like you got to have some sort of waving hand saying, "Okay, this is us, and we got some cool stuff here." And it, it's and I was just wondering if that was the song that sort of did it for you, just to get your sort of foot in the door. Yeah. When it came to our third album, "This Is the Ice Age," we made a huge uh, turn musically into something else because that was the natural evolution for us. And that, and basically, when we did that album, they said, "Well, you know, you're now working with this unknown, pro- you know, producer who was Daniel Lanois, but before anyone knew who he was, right? And we're going to pay you ten thousand. I can't remember whether it was dollars or pounds less to do the album if you want to use him. And we said that's fine because we don't want to use whoever you want to want us to yeah, use. We were happy with Dan. We already yeah. worked with him." The creative vibe was really good. So I wanted to ask you, uh, um, Martha, you've been quite open about your uh, diagnosis of Parkinson's and and you've been able to continue performing and you raise awareness in your shows as well and doing things with the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit or just to let our listeners know about that? Yeah, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease 21 years ago. 
And um, for the first 10 years, it wasn't wasn't too debilitating. And uh, I was still performing. I did it. Um, we were still making record, records and doing music regularly. But uh, in the last uh, five to 10 years, it's become more of a, of a burden. And yeah. the symptoms, symptoms have become stronger. So I, I'm not doing any more live performing because it, the last time I did it, it was disappointing because I, I just couldn't find, find the voice and the okay. stamina to get through the set the, the yeah. way I should. And that, and that, whereas recording is a different thing. You have a chance to sing it again and to layer stuff and, and do all sorts of tricks with the studio. Yeah. The live thing is just too much for my my body to, to to withstand. Kudos to you for for bringing awareness to it. I mean, some people would would go into a shell maybe or a cocoon a little bit because of it, but yeah. uh, bringing it out is, speaks well of you. Well, thank you. You have to adapt to things, you know. And just, I've just had to adapt to this to this disease being part of my life. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest Don Schmidt, drummer for the iconic Canadian band the Northern Pikes. The band is originally from Saskatoon. We grew up there and, um, you know, got out of there. It was hard to get out. I mean, we started, the band started in January of 1984 and started from a different, a couple of different bands um, prior to that. The main one was called The Idols, Jay Semko, Merle Brick, and myself, along with Neil Morgan. Unfortunately, he passed away in in a car accident in January of 1984. He was playing with... uh, a lounge band called Dear Friends, and they were going. They were playing seven nights uh, or six nights a week in clubs, like top of the line circuit, like in hotels, that sort of thing. They were a lounge mm-hmm. band, and they were traveling to Banff and got in a bad wow. accident near Brooks, Alberta, and three of them were killed: the drummer, the bass player, and Neil, the guitar player. So, wow. and that yeah. was and that was January eighth of nineteen eighty four. And that's then right when the Pike started. It was kind of a wake up call for Jay and Merle. Um, to really sort of carry on um, because the idols had broken up uh, about six months earlier in the, in the late summer of 83. And Neil picked up this gig, you know, just not because it was really what he wanted to do or the path he wanted to go on, but it was a way to make some money while he was working on, um, he had a four track cassette um, recorded with him on the road and he was writing songs and that was just something to get him to the next Step, yeah, you know, you know it's, when you say that, it just makes you cringe because, you know, I've played in Brooks, I've played in Banff, I've been a traveling musician most of my life, and you, mm-hmm. we've all had those little times on the road when you're like, okay, I got out of that one, you know, almost an yeah. accident, or you're too mm-hmm. tired, or the guy falls half asleep when he's driving. And, oh, <laughs> I know, yeah. We've, we've been at, been Yeah, there, I right? know, that's, you know, and I, yeah, I drove a lot too in, in the bands, you know, it's sort of certain people become designated drivers. And for some reason, I enjoyed driving. But I do recall, yes, many times where you push it, kind of like truckers in a way, you know, yeah. you're, you're on the yeah. road and you got to get somewhere and and you're pushing it and you get tired and think, yeah, there's lots of times when, wow, you just go, whew. Yeah. yeah so I'm Probably sorry to hear it. that story. You know, I almost always drive now because I, I look at it like a fight. It's, it's a fight right. between me and the road and I'm not going to lose <laughs> that fight. I, I, I made a, a deal with myself years ago that I was never going to die in an accident on the road. That was my fault. Right. Yeah. And I've always mm-hmm. kept that deal up. And when I drive, I'm very intense about the way I drive because I'm keeping mm-hmm. us all alive. So yeah, yeah thanks exactly. for sharing that. It's a sad yeah. story, but you know, yeah, geez. exactly.
We are spread out right across Canada. I'm out here yep. now in, in the West Coast, just outside of Vancouver. Yep. Jay Semko is still in Saskatoon. He's still a yep. Saskatooner. <laughs> Brian Potvin has moved out to Lunenburg, Nova Scotia about okay. five years ago. Yep. And now our newest member of the band, Kevin Kane, who is from and still is a member of the Grapes of Wrath, is, is yep. our fourth member now. And him and his wife have just moved out to um, the Western Shore, which is just on the other side of Mahone Bay near Lunenburg, Nova Scotia. So nice. there's two out there, one in the prairies, and I'm out here in beautiful British Columbia. That was the big thing for me was making records. Somehow, I, I um, somehow that was an early, early um, dream of mine was to be in a band that mm. made records. Not even yeah. so much touring because I didn't even yeah. really at, at, in that age you didn't know about touring really, yeah, <laughs> or how hard it can be. I remember going to the the drugstore and, and looking at magazines that there was Circus and there was Cream. Yeah. magazines which had great like f- like you know big photos of like kiss and led zeppelin and oh yeah all the yeah. bands of the time and that was because re- there were no music videos there was no way to really know about an artist or a group unless you had their album i mean yeah. i don't know how else back then you really found out you couldn't google you know and in saskatoon in those years in the mid 70s our arena was not big enough for the big concerts so oh. those big shows would go from calgary edmonton right over saskatchewan to winnipeg you know i always yeah. dreamed of seeing seeing kiss for example live and just they were never around anywhere remotely close to where you know a 14 15 right. 16 year old kid could go and so as a result i think that in a way was part of what gave the Northern Pikes our unique approach and sound and style was that Mm. we came out of a city where there wasn't a lot of influence really. You know, like bigger Mm. cities, there's so many more groups. There's so much more you can can grab um, ideas from and, and thoughts and that sort of thing. But we were so remotely located in Saskatchewan there that, you know, it gave us a, a fresh start in some ways. When I was researching for this interview, I, I, I was asking myself, well, how many bands, how many iconic sort of Canadian bands hailed from Saskatoon? And I couldn't mm-hmm. think of another, maybe I'm missing some. Can you think of any other ones? So I think we were one of the, well, I think we were actually the first band, well, we were the first band to be signed to a record deal from Saskatoon. Yeah. I can't think of any other band that before us. Yeah. Um, okay. The Sheepdogs now are, are from Saskatoon, White okay. North Mason. Yeah. Um, since I've moved away, you kind of lose track a little bit of what's going on there, but there wasn't many. But yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because, um, you know, being being proud of where you come from and coming from a smaller town, yeah, you can make it in the big city. You just have to do big city things. You have to have good songs mm-hmm. and, and do all the things that everybody else does, right? And you guys were able to do that. When we went to Toronto in the fall of 86, we would go there for extended weeks and, and sometimes months, and we would rent mm. apartment apartments. Well, it started out as one apartment, a two-bedroom yeah. for five guys, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. you know, for a couple, three months. And we'd play up and down the 401 from basically you know, St. Catharines, London, Windsor, all the way to 
Montreal was about as far. And, you know, the interesting thing about playing in those cities coming from, it was actually kind of exotic for those people to see a band. Like if you're in Toronto, you, you don't necessarily want to see a band from Toronto necessarily. You want Like it was interesting, a band from Saskatoon. It was such a, it was a freak yeah. show in some ways. Like, no, <laughs> like, as we said, not many groups came out of Saskatoon. So there is an attraction to that sort of recluse coming from the middle of nowhere. It's almost a story yeah. in itself. Um, we were just playing gigs at that point. We did all of our recording or in those years in Saskatoon, well, actually at Pike Lake, Saskatchewan, just outside of Saskatoon at Studio okay. West. Yeah. It was a, a big 24-track studio, and it was very expensive. So our a friend who, who was an engineer there, Mitch Barnett, would bring the band in like from midnight till, you know, eight in the morning. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Another yeah. one of those deals. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the graveyard shift kind of thing. The two independent records did reasonably well. Um, we sent them out, packaged them up, and Jay, in those years, went to the library and got a listing of all of the college radio stations in mm. the United States and Canada. And yeah. we you know, packaged up promo kits, album. Yeah. We even put a self-stamped return address postcard to, to leave your comments about we thought about these yeah. independent records and we were starting to get you know word back from like florida and georgia from these college stations that thought it was great and it was gain it was just such a i mean that really was the incentive to just really keep it going because there are many times as you know yeah. where you just want to quit you just feel like wow you're, you're making no money and it doesn't look good and so yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to keep a band together in those early years because you know, it's just, you're against all the odds, it seems. It was really Virgin. Doug Chappelle was the president of Virgin. He had just come from Island Records. Okay. And he wanted to sign a band when he was with Island called Tokyo, which became Glass Tiger. And huh. he didn't get a blessing to sign them. So he was frustrated with that. He, he was the president yeah. of the company in Canada and really couldn't sign who he wanted to sign. So he left, went to Virgin. And we were the first, uh, and during that time, those months went by, Glass Tiger did get signed, so they were gone, and we yeah. were next on his list. And he really loved the two independent records. And Doug Chappelle actually flew out to Saskatoon to see us play oh, nice. in 1986, which was completely unheard of. Yeah. And then December 18th of 1986, we signed with Virgin at the Copa in Toronto. <laughs> yeah. Came home for Christmas and started recording Big Blue Sky in January of 87. And yep. that was Very the cool. start of just, a. it was like starting from, that was the start. When you signed to Virgin Records, now you're on a, a major record label, what would be considered a one of the big labels. And so now you're off to the races, right? That would be 1987. Hmm. You recorded Big Blue Sky. And where did you record that? We well, we recorded that at Metalworks in Mississauga, um, which was cool because that studio was owned by the band Triumph. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah. Gil mostly Gil Moore, the drummer at that point. It was really yeah. neat because in the back, um, Gil had a lot of his extra drums and things set up. And I remember recording his gong. He had a great big oh, gong cool. on his stand, and that was my first real experience with the gong. <laughs> you know, I'd yeah. seen John Bond with Led Zeppelin use him before, but I, <laughs> yeah. I'd never even really seen a gong at that point in my life. In, in wow! So that was quite cool but when we signed our deal with virgin we were the first band on virgin to sign a contract with a cd clause in it mm. everything prior to that was lp and cassette yeah. eight track you know and nowadays they just say you know any future medium that might 
come along in, in, terms in the of universe, the, the universal deals. No, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sandy Horn is best known for her time as the bass player in the iconic Canadian band, the spoons uh, was radio play and a successful career beginning in the early 1980s. So you're, you're one of those natural entertainers, right? The kind of person who's always wanted to do something, sing, play, tap dance, whatever. Yeah. Right. From about the age of three or four years of age, when I realized I wanted the stage. Yeah. Uh, it was due, um, I was watching Wizard of Oz for the very first time. Very scary movie when you were a child. Yeah. <laughs> uh, besides the scary part, uh, it was Judy Garland that was my biggest influence. And I just remember mm-hmm. watching her singing and dancing and turning to my dad, who was watching a movie with me, who was also a big Judy Garland fan, and nice. said, Daddy, I want to do what she's doing. I'm going on stage. <laughs> and, you know, it was, I didn't know how I was going to get there. Yeah. I didn't know what I'd be doing. I just knew I was going to be on stage. I don't I can't speak for everybody, at least for myself and the rest of the guys in the band. When we were doing the band, it wasn't about money. It was about the music and getting out there. I mean, we lived on, you know, crumbs and lived out of the back of a van and and so forth like that. And I mean, I wouldn't do that today if I was starting a band. But, you know, when you're young and you don't have any attachments and you only have your bedroom at your parents' house, what else have you got? You know, let's go on the road. Let's go. Before Spoons, uh, Gordon and I had a band called Impulse, which was a cover band. Okay. And uh, it was about a, a mile walk to where we were, um, you know, practicing. And it yeah. was at the basement of a music store. So it was like a Sunday afternoon or something. We were going to go practice in the basement of the store that was closed because both uh, Gordon and the drummer at the time, Gary Kennett, worked for the music store. And they said, okay, you can just, okay. you know, use the basement to practice in. So we were on the way there and I was carrying my bass and it was very heavy and the boys kept saying, do you want me to carry it for you? You know, the drummer's only got a pair of sticks in his hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have my bass and I'm walking a mile with it and it's heavy on one arm and I'm switching to the other side and I'm like, no, I'm carrying it. It's my yeah. instrument. I'm carrying it. And I just remember walking. I can't even remember the name of the road, but I remember walking around the corner of it. It was just like a, I don't know, it's not a deja vu moment, I guess. It's just kind of an epiphany where I went, I'm going to be doing this for a very long time. For me, even playing the bass was a complete accident. Okay. It wasn't like I went, woke up one day and I went, that instrument, I'm going to pick that up and I'm going to play it. Nope, that's not what happened to oh, me. How did that no, happen? No, it happened. Um, I had met Gord in the high school band. Grade nine, I was in the junior band and I was doing really well on trumpet and I'd already been playing the guitar on my own. And uh, the uh, conductor, teacher for the, the music group and, and the, uh, the stage bands um, said, you know, you're doing really well in the junior band and uh, you're head trumpet player, but we just lost our third trumpet player in the senior band and we've got some big events coming up. And my girlfriend, Mary, lived across the street and she was head trumpet player. She was first trumpet player. So she, he said, Mary can get you up to speed if you're interested. And I said, sure. So I immediately joined this. That was never heard of in grade nine. Hmm. Um, I immediately joined the, the senior band around, you know, late November, made made it to the uh, Christmas assembly <laughs> just in the yeah. nick of time. And uh, on a band trip in the early spring, we were on our way to Armprior, Ontario, Ontario. And Gord was the uh, first sax player. <laughs> and on the way to Ampere, Ontario, I brought my acoustic guitar and he brought his acoustic guitar. He was in the back with the boys doing Genesis and Robert Fripp and I don't know, whatever. And I was in the front with the girls doing country songs. And uh, eventually the guitarist got to the back of the bus and he said to me, almost his first words ever, um, 
can you play the root notes on the four lower strings and then I can do more lead stuff. Yeah. And I saw so that was basically the bass, right? Yeah. Or lower strings. Cool. Um, so I started playing that and the drummer in the high school band was also in his band impulse, uh, Gary. And yeah. they said to me, you know, we need a bass player. Do you want to play bass? And I went, sure. So from yeah. there, we did a battle of bands about eight weeks later. And uh, because the music store was our place of practice, I was allowed to use any bass on the wall after hours to try them oh, out. Cool. So I got yep. to learn all about the basses and amps and so forth. Oh, cool. um, and then with the money I we won with the Battle of the Bands, um, I bought my first bass. But then from there, Gordon and I left the Impulse and we formed a, a prog band, a progressive band, or formed yeah. ourselves into it. And that was all original. The first band was not original. We were doing cover tunes. Right. And it was all kind of Van de Graaff generator, early Genesis with Peter Gabriel style. You know, right. we'd, we'd learn how they wrote those songs and then we'd self-indulge into eight-minute epic songs, changing time <laughs> signatures and being as complicated as we possibly could and trying to stay in time. From that, uh, our, our drummer at the time, Peter Shepard, was leaving to go to university or college or something because we're all still in high school at this point, like grades yes. like 10, 11, 12, 13. And at that time, the music was late 79 and music was shifting a little bit and going more punky new wave and you know we were like well maybe we should just change it up a little take our best of our bits from uh, trist and and formulate songs a right. different form like a verse and a chorus what a concept um yeah. <laughs> and maybe a bridge so uh, that's what we did so we there was the three of us we didn't have a drummer so our first drummer was our drum machine off of uh, brett's old home organ you remember the old oh absolutely yeah that's a cool story. And the funny thing is, is that when you think back, like, good Lord, you're barely out of your teen years, right? You talk about these things like like there's some kind of you know, serious thing going on and you're doing your best, but you're so young at the time. You just got stars in your eyes and you're thinking, let's play this, let's play that, right? Yeah. And one, one step leads yeah. to another bridge that yeah. you cross over, it, you know, creates another thing. So um, after Brett had joined the band and over a bowl of soup at lunch and Brett threw me a spoon and it splashed in my soup and they were like what about yep. the spoons and I went "Ooh, okay whatever I'm soaked um and then Derek came on board because he was now the uh drummer for the high school band that we were still in and yep. Derek joined the band Derek Ross yeah and cool and just and then when we landed our record deal with Ready Records um Rob had already seen us a few times around playing some local shows at festivals and things and um Brett said he wanted to go to England and start, he became an artist and started designing major label uh, covers for out bands, yeah, right? Yeah, cool. Yeah. So um, that's when he Rob came into the band and yeah. rest was history. It was also a time when we were, you know, our parents were like, it's all fine and dandy. You want to do music, dear, but you know, you need to get a, a you know, um, you need to have a certificate or, yeah, you know, something to fall your master's or stuff yeah. fall back on. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, geez, do I have to do this? <laughs> so I did. I, I took what I thought was the fastest course I could possibly take, which was data processing, uh, computer operations and data processing right. and programming yeah. at Mohawk College, which was basically three years crammed into you uh, to two. Yeah. And I had to go to school during the summer. And mm -hmm. Gord was already a year ahead of me. So he was on his ending his third year in uh, English and literature at Mac yeah. um, University. So we were trying to finish school at the same time, finish the album. So we'd go to school. Okay. I'd come, both of us would come in because we were already in Hamilton. Yeah. And we'd meet Derek and Rob at Grand Avenue Studios and we'd start about six o'clock at night 
and we'd go to three in the morning. Then we'd go home for four hours and start all over. Again. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess that's what you got to do if you're if you're trying to make something out of yourself, and you're you know you're going to do double duty, burn the candle at both ends, as they say, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You had one of the first videos on Much Music too, right? You were. Yeah. Like, uh, well, videos had been made in the seventies, but it, there wasn't really a station per se for yeah. it, where there was a countdown. Like they had the countdown on radio, but you didn't have the countdown on TV. So kids would come home from school for their, you know, five to five thirty countdown. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and um, and that's where we kind of came into play when with Nova Heart. Um, I mean, we won awards with Nova Heart because we were kind of the only Canadian band. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> out at the time so we kind of um you know put in with other competition down the way we might not have but uh it just happened to be our first song played on much music was the very first episode with was us and duran duran and a few other right. i did see that yeah yeah and it was romantic traffic yeah. at that time yeah looking back on it you must reflect on it fondly right you just look back and go hey, oh yeah it was what it i was. mean i wouldn't trade anything for the world it was a blast it was a roller you know to me music uh, being in the music industry is a roller coaster you either get on or get off yeah exactly. you know yeah. and it, it takes a certain i don't know spirit or something to um self ability to to st stick with it because it yeah. has its high high highs and it has its low low lows oh yeah um, yeah so you know you either say yeah i want to be a part of this or you get off it and do something else a and M kind of dropped us because the A and R guy, A and R guy, didn't <laughs> care. Well, he, yeah. I don't even think he even listened to our stuff. He just didn't pick anybody up oh. that was that was hmm. signed through the other guy. Um, you know, if, if there's not much you could have done about that, right? No, but if there was, if we maybe had more of the, uh, I don't know, knowledge maybe or whatever to figure out how to get the material back from A and M and then sell it. To another American company because right, okay. it was right in the process when Carl Finkel was leaving and Anthem was coming on and Anthem wasn't interested and oh it was just it was just a big mess um, yeah. at that time and it, you know I would have liked it not to be so messy if that could be. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Harris.